temporary tents and eternal buildings. Northeast 28th Street cuts a scar across the north side of Fort Worth. It uh, sits nestled next to Billy Bob's Country Western Nightclub, where wannabe suburban cowboys can boot scoot. <laughs> it's astride the Pink Poodle Diner that's open 24-7, 365, so that the folks who leave Billy Bob's will have somewhere to go at 2.30 in the morning. And then on either side of it are pawn shops, payday loan storefronts, used car lots, and yes, even the shady lady nightclub. Rodeo Drive, it's not. (laughs) That's why, apropos of nothing, suddenly an emerald Eden emerges, an endowed perpetual care cemetery, Mount Olive, You're not expecting to see it right there. It's a relic of another day a hundred years earlier when that was a more genteel part of the city. However, for many folks, great-grandpa bought a family plot a hundred years ago, and one by one they've reluctantly been placed in the shadow of the shady lady (laughs) and not far from the pink poodle, stuck in more than one sense of the word, (laughs) in a place they might rather not be. So it was on July 18th in 107 degree heat. I stood there with an American Airlines International pilot. I'd been his pastor. I'd conducted the wedding for him and his wife, dedicated their children. I was kind of the pastor of record for the family, even though I'd seen none of them for a while. And we were there for the committal service of his 90-year-old father, whom I had taught in Sunday school at one time, years before. There we were, ready for the usual sanitized committal service. You know, the green tent, the fake green grass, the plastic chairs, First Thessalonians, a very brief prayer in 107-degree weather, and everyone leaping back into their cars. But he didn't want that. He did something that I hadn't done in a long time, having done hundreds of committal services. He wanted to wait until everyone was gone, and he wanted me to read Holy Scripture while they lowered his father's casket into the ground at Mount Olive. And, of course, I obliged him. Everyone was gone. They took down the tent, rolled up the green grass, carted off the plastic chairs, And none of the accoutrements that makes a grave not look like a grave were anywhere around. We were looking right down into a six-foot-deep hole at a vault where the casket would sit. The dirt off of 28th Street has some interesting geological striations. There's burnt grass and then a few inches of loam and then red clay and then white caliche and then some kind of yellowish soil and I read scripture as they lowered just, just the pilot and I there. Takes a while today to lower a casket. Read Psalm 46, something from the gospel. And our text 
2 Corinthians 5, 4, if this earthly tent house is dismantled, we are having a building from God, not made with hands eternal in the heavens. And I watched it. As I, I walked away, I decided the first part of that great affirmation is easier to understand than the second part. It was obvious that that 90-year-old's tent house had been dismantled and we were watching it descend into the earth on that 107-degree day. That the only buildings nearby were not eternal buildings made without hand. They were the pink poodle and the shady lady lounge. And I sat there with a kind of dissonance. I walked back to my car tired and discouraged. And you know what I thought to myself on that day looking down in that gash in the ground? If anything happens to this tent, God is going to have to do it. And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul wants you to think. <laughs> this is a passage in a way for discouraged ministers. In fact, in chapter 4 and verse 1 of the previous chapter, unfortunately divided from chapter 5, he admonishes you. He, he, he says, since we've received mercy, we do not lose heart. We don't play the coward. And then in verse 16, he takes up that same theme again. In the face of discouragements in ministry, he says, we don't lose heart. And without missing a beat, part of that is this recognition that even though we live in temporary tent houses, there is a building, a habitation under construction from God, made without hands, in the heaven, and eternal. And so he meets our discouragement. He begins this with a word that includes us. He says, we. I wouldn't limit that just to the apostles or the apostolic cohort. We. He taught this to the Corinthians. He seems to suggest that it was fundamental, that it was very much the foundation of what he had said in Corinth. Not peripheral, but central. That we in this tent house have an eternal building. We. It's in it's in the Apostles' Creed, every version of it. The most ancient version, the Catholic version, the Lutheran version, the Methodist version, and the Catholic version. <laughs> we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. It's easy to look at this passage in the general, sometimes hard in specific, because it talks about a world we know nothing about. But he does talk about something we know and something we have and some reason we groan and something God has done. He says we know that if this tent house is dismantled, we have a building in the heavens. We know it, not, not in the sense that other epistemologists know things, not in the sense that Plato imagined those shadows and knows some ideal world up there somewhere, not in the sense that Descartes sat in that famous stove and thought and thought until he thought that he thought. <laughs> Not surely in the sense of A.J. Eyre 
and that kind of bloodless, flat-earth group of empiricists who say the only thing that exists is what you can weigh and measure. No, not that kind of knowing. It's the kind of knowing that comes from somewhere else, from the crashing in of God's act in Christ Jesus when he broke the chain of death against the wall of the sepulcher and marched out as risen Lord. That knowing, the knowing of Job, wherever that land of Oz was, when he cried out, if this skin is destroyed, I know that in my flesh I, I'll see God. It's the knowing even in verse 16 of the previous chapter where Paul Paul says this outer person is in the process of perishing, but at the same time, that paradox, the inner person is being renewed. And he knew that the God who renewed that inner person would one day renew everything about him. And so it was that kind of, it's the kind of knowing, it's the kind of knowing of a sunflower, I'd say. It's a kind of poetic knowing that that heliotropic flower bows its head to the east in the morning and follows the sun till it bows its head in the west. It's the kind of knowing of a ruby-throated hummingbird, a tiny bird that takes off from Central America by some unseen clock and makes its way to Canada and then makes its way back. It's even the kind of knowing of those theoretical physicists who who ever since Einstein did his work, knew that there was something else out there. They called it the God particle, that fourth force. They knew it was there intuitively. They knew it was there mathematically. But just now, having spent hundreds of millions of dollars on a particle accelerator on the border of France and Switzerland, they finally saw what they knew was there. Several years ago, Eugene Peterson here, who translated the message and wrote a hundred other books, and I asked him, how did you do that? It's kind of a silly question, but he said, everything in nature illustrates something in grace. Now, I know that's an argument from faith to faith. Richard Dawkins isn't going to fall on his knees and say Jesus is Lord. <laughs> but from faith to faith, it's what we know. And Paul says one thing we know is that we are a tent house. He knew something about that. Acts 18.3, he glues himself there at Corinth to Aquila and Priscilla. They were skein or tent makers. I don't know. I don't think he made great pavilions for the Romans. I think he repaired worn-out goat hair tents on that site by lamplight at night. He knew that they frayed, that they came apart, that the gossets came out, that the wind blew them down. He knew about, but he knew about tents more than that because in his DNA, in his Hebrew DNA, he remembered those years when the whole nation lived in tents, striking them and moving. He remembered the same thing Hebrews remembers all the way back to the blood of Abraham that flowed in Paul's veins. Abraham settled down permanently in tents along with Isaac and Jacob who were heirs with him of the same problem because they were looking for what? They were looking for a city, some kind of permanent habitation. It wasn't hard at all for Paul to think about this living in a 
tent house. <laughs> tent house indeed. One cell mutates. <laughs> We're out of here. <laughs> Run one red light. <laughs> Walk into one convenience store at the wrong time. <laughs> Get on an airplane like the Air France flight June 1st, 2009 where one little instrument of piton that measures airspeed freezes over and 228 people at the bottom of the Atlantic. Yes, we live in a tent house. I don't think you have to say too much. We know that part. Have you ever lived in a tent? I lived in a tent one time on South Padre Island for a month. In another life, I was doing marine biological research. We inlanders and flatlanders from Fort Worth had gone down there and set up a tent near Port Isabel. The first night, a gale force wind and rain blew our tent into the intercoastal canal. I remember 3 a.m., rain in my face trying to fish the tent out. There's nothing permanent about living in a tent. The sand and the bacon, sand and the eggs gives a new meaning to the word sandwich. It's just not permanent. Uh, we live in a tent house. A lot of us are fooled in the way William Soroyan was. Lived from 1908 to 1981. He was an epigrammist, a witticist. He said, I know everyone would die. I just think there'd be an exception in my case. No. It, it, it really doesn't take holy scripture to demonstrate to us the truth of Protasis for you Greek students. <laughs> if this tent is dissolved, we know that. But it takes a divine revelation to demonstrate the apotosis, the hard part. If this tent, we are having a building eternal in the heavens. That's not something that you see looking into a hole on 28th Street when it's 107 degrees. That's something for which the apostle has to part the curtain, lift the shroud, pull away the veil, and say with apostolic authority, we are having it. In fact, he even breaks the rules of grammar. Where there should have been one verb, he uses another one and says in the present indicative, we are having it. By this point, it was so real to Paul, I don't know, he was like standing in one of those thin places in, the, in one of the Irish islands as if he could reach through it from nowness to thinness, from hereness to thereness. Say, so we're having a building. I don't think you have to look far for how that must have come to Paul. There, even at Corinth, working on those tents at night by firelight, Maybe the moonlight shined down on the temple of Apollo that was 500 years old when Paul was in there working on tents. To them, it looked like something that lasted forever. A tent, a building, but one made without hands. You know, we shouldn't miss what is obvious on the very surface of this text. I think it's easily missed. was for me till I thought a lot about it. You need to see the forest for the trees. And that is, there is a we, a you, 
a personality that is separate from where that personality dwells. Paul says it's in a tent house, but then it's in a house eternal in the heavens made without hands. Now, make no mistake about apostolic canonical Christianity. (laughs) Paul does not believe in body, soul, dualism. He's not talking about you becoming some ambiguous amoeba out there somewhere, some bilious blob, some shady shale. No, not talking about that at all. If you think that's what he means, you might want to spend a little time with the classic by Oscar Kuhlmann, The Immortality of the Soul or The Resurrection of the Dead. Paul cannot imagine any kind of existence that that's kind of wishbis effervescent, evanescent kind of thing. No, he's talking about personality that in some way, and it's a metaphor, has a new habitation. Now, don't drag that metaphor down to some crude materialism, but lift it up to what it would mean and what we can't even imagine. It's obvious. The text was read. 1 Corinthians 15, what we put in the ground is corruptible. It dissolves. But that day, something not capable of corruption, what we put in the ground is dishonored. All of the embalming and the rouge of the mortician cannot ultimately hide the fact that it is dishonoring, but glory. What we put in the ground, essentially weak. What comes out, powerful. Put in the ground a natural body, raised whatever that oxymoron means, a spiritual body. That's the promise of the gospel. Paul knew something that the Greeks around him didn't know. In Athens, visit the National Museum for many reasons, but over there are some funerary monuments from Attic Greece. The sadness of them reaches out across 2,300 years. Here's a a wife gravely shaking hands with her husband, going nowhere. Here's another young woman holding a casket full of her jewelry, handing it to a female servant as if to leave everything she had because she was going nowhere. That was the world where Paul preached this, and it was the world where in those Christian catacombs outside of Rome, you don't see pictures like that. You see frescoes of a risen Christ and the hope of a resurrection. (laughs) But this isn't any shallow triumphalism. Oh, no, 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 no. Paul's right here with both feet planted on earth. This isn't some silly thought. He says, no, we groan. He says, we groan because we long. And we groan, he says in verse 4, because we're burdened with a weight. (laughs) No, no shallow triumphalism. Right now, we're in a place of groaning. He says it two times. Isn't it the human situation? Baby, born, gasping for breath, needs more, more. Little children playing like superheroes. (laughs) What's the fascination with that? 
Batman, Spider-Man, Superman, Wonder Woman, because there's this groaning sense of more to slip the bounds of the habitation I have. Young people, restless, I've been there. Relationship to relationship, career to career, club to club. There's something more. Someone in the middle of life taking care of a parent with Parkinson's and a child with problems. Isn't there more than this? And yes, an octogenarian, like one I was talking to just the other day, saying this went by so fast. Is there anything more? We live in a groaning world. If you listen, you hear it. Every time you drive by a hospital, every time you take a medical test, every time you go to a pharmacy, every time you read an obituary, every time the world groans and says, is this all? I suppose an iconic picture of the 20th century was Edvard Munch's expressionist picture, The Scream. Remember it? <laughs> he did four of them. This wild-looking character screaming against an orangish-red background. One sold last year for $120 million, the most ever paid for a piece of art by any collector. Someone asked that, Norwegian, why did you paint that? And he said, I was walking one day with two friends and I got to be so depressed that I felt like there was a scream inspiring all of nature. Paul doesn't disagree with that, short of what he's talking about. No, no, here's not some Paul who, who, who's willing to say, you know, uh, if you just live an ethical life, it'll be worth it. No. He says, I'm of all men most miserable. Wait a minute, Paul, you wrote Romans. I'm still miserable. <laughs> if there's no resurrection, Paul doesn't play any games about it. He says there's nothing but a groaning place. I studied years ago with the late Dr. Ray Summers, chairman of the Department of Religion here. He told about a sabbatical. He'd gone to Basel to study with some biblical scholar, and the man died right when he got there. So he went to his funeral, and he said they were lined up at the graveside as the Swiss do to toss an Edelweiss into the open grave. And he said the man's colleague, Karl Barth, came. And he stood there for what seemed like an interminable time. And instead of tossing it in, Dr. Summers said he saw him take it and hurl it in great anger and walk away. That's what the groaning is about, if that's all there is. But, 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 but Paul, Paul turns a corner, and this is some more logic from faith to faith. He says, the very fact of your groaning, longing, is a demonstration of the existence of the thing you long for. Interesting logic. He says we're groaning, and then he invents a word. It's not used anywhere else. He invents a word to put on over us something else, like an investiture. One garment, oh, he changes the metaphor. We're in a tent in a building. Now we're putting on something over us that absorbs us so that we are both in discontinuity and continuity with what God does. He says, we're groaning for that investiture 
to have something put on over the tent. I don't know what it means. He's straining language to the very boundaries of language. But that language is the language that he had. <laughs> now on a lower, lesser, lighter level, we know what it is to put something on over what we got on. I used to work for a crazy man. Uh, now, Dean Garland, I said, I used to work for a crazy man. I said, <laughs> he's a publisher. The man was impetuously do anything. We were out at a trade show in Long Beach at the convention center, and we had a late plane to catch, and we were on business suits and ties. We've been trying to peddle magazine ads, and this guy said, let's go jet skiing out in Long Beach Harbor. Well, we were in business suits. I couldn't believe what he made us do. We went and got rubberized wetsuits and put them over our business suits. <laughs> and here we were, six grown men on jet skis out in the harbor off Long Beach. We had put on one thing over another. <laughs> but you know, as silly as that is, when I thought about it the other day, <laughs> yes, we were going into a different environment, and it was a necessity. It was a necessity to be in that environment. As silly as that is, how many times did I tell my sons before they went out to ski, layer up, you're going into a different environment. I don't know what Paul means by these words. But he says the very longing is the evidence of the thing longed for. I'm hungry. Universal longing. There's food out there. I'm thirsty, parched mouth, cotton mouth with thirst. That means there's water out there. I long for intimacy. That means there's a friend or a marriage partner. I, I'm curious. And there's a world that responds to that curiosity. And Paul would finish that syllogism by saying, behind every other longing is this longing from a tent to an eternal habitation. Just makes sense. <laughs> you know, it's good to get it out of the abstract and put it in the concrete. Paul wasn't writing 2 Corinthians 5 in the cool comfort of a $25 million seminary building where we can muse about text. He was writing it in a world looking at tombs all the time and maybe standing over a grave on 28th Street's the right place to think about this. Or maybe thinking. In a few days from now, April 4th, be the 45th anniversary, 1968. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., on that balcony at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. His head shot off, lying in his own blood. Does the moral universe make any sense if that's the last you ever see of him? The man who taught millions to sing, we shall overcome? I don't think so. I think there ought to be a million-voice choir singing, we have overcome. Here's that young man earlier mentioned, Clint Dobson, who stood behind this very desk and preached as the outstanding preacher. Is the end of that March the 3rd, 2011, strangled in a church office where he was pastor? I think not. 
I think of Clint Dodson. Forever, 28, a personality that filled a whole room, an inquisitive mind, having forever to be who he is. April 9, 1945, Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer pulled out of bed at dawn in a squalid, ugly little concentration camp, Flossenburg, stripped naked, hung from a rope. Was that the end of the man who wrote a book telling us how to have life together? I think not. There is a lordly logic about what Paul writes. That if this earthly tent house is dissolved, we are having a habitation of God without hands in the heavens.